You're listening to Trucking Questions from the Audio Road with Kevin Rutherford. This is the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. You can ask questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, tax, technology, or anything else about the business of trucking. Here we go. Let's head on down the audio road. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. Today is the power hour. I've got Ethan and John with me from Pittsburgh Power. This is the show where we take your calls and answer your questions about everything maintenance, engines, performance, modifications, upgrades, troubleshooting, you name it. We'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and ask the question. We're going to get to those questions in just a little bit. I want to bring in the guys from Pittsburgh Power. Ethan and John, welcome back, guys. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Good. I understand uh, Bruce may be joining us today. Yeah, he's in a meeting right now. So uh, if he finishes up in time, he'll jump in. Got it. Got it. All right. So, uh I don't have anything at all today, which is unusual, but uh, anything you guys want to start with? Uh, a couple of things. We've got our first, uh, the ISX, the, the new full-tilt ISX intake manifold we've uh, done some dyno testing with and has been out running for a couple of weeks now, and the driver's really happy with it. We didn't see huge numbers on the dyno. It's just like another eight horsepower, but it does feed the cylinders more evenly, and uh the driver feels the drivability is a little bit better. It feels like it's a little broader torque range, and uh, he's seen a small improvement in fuel mileage as well. So that's a product we've had on the shelf here for a little while that we hadn't had time to do some proper testing with, and we finally have, and it seems to be working out. Good. So we've got now, that one. The, I've got uh, a truck coming. Oh, good. That's an that's an intake manifold. That's is that the only engine that that we have a modified intake manifold for? It is, actually. We've got a, a part of an ISX. Earlier ISXs, we had a piece of the manifold that we'd modified. But uh, this is the only full full manifold. Um, the shortcoming with the ISX, the factory manifold, is it doesn't feed uh, one and two, number one and two, very well. It seems to direct all the airflow to the rear cylinders. And even though it's under pressure, the lack of flow toward the front and something happens in there, it uh, doesn't feed those two quite as well. So what they've done is put a little diverter inside the manifold and open the volume of it up as well, and they've increased the flow, and they've also directed uh, half the flow toward the front of the engine where it was was uh, being was missing out earlier. Got it. But uh, that seemed to be an improvement. I've got a truck coming in next week for my first uh, soot separator on the EGR, so we're going to got a DD15 coming in. We're going to do an oil flush on it. Uh, I'm take an oil sample right now, do an oil flush on it, do a full EGR and after treatment maintenance on it and add our uh, my cyclonic separator to the EGR flow. See if we could pull any more carbon out of it there. So it'll be pretty easy to figure out. We'll pull, a, you pull the bottom off the can and see if it caught anything. And we'll watch, uh, we'll watch the oil analysis as well. Yeah, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to that one. So, yeah, see what that does for us. Then we'll see what it does for longevity. I mean, Detroit's done such a good job with that engine. You know, if we could add to it, uh, you know, that might become a 2 million mile engine instead of a 1.4, 1.5 million mile engine. It's pretty amazing how that that'd thing works. Wild. Yeah. Yeah, that'd yep. be awesome. 
No, it, it's interesting that of the, the emission engines, that one tends to be the lower soot numbers anyway. It's a pretty clean burning engine when it's running, right? So to be able to, to get even more out, like you say, that may become a two million mile engine. Yeah, if we could get it to pre-EGR numbers on the soot, that'd be terrific. Yeah, it could definitely, you know, add a little life to it and so forth. But yeah, they've got very few problems. I mean, we, we see so few of those, uh, you know, maybe a minor oil leak here or there. I know we've resealed a rear structure on one once. We do an overhead once in a while. And we're starting to see some uh, after treatment related check engine lights. It's a little maintenance needs to be done on the def pump. That's uh, really not all that complicated, but it seems to, to help a lot. And that, that's about all with that thing. It's a pretty amazing, it's a pretty amazing piece. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't uh, I don't make a lot of predictions, but I back in oh I'm thinking it might have been oh eight oh nine when everybody was talking about new engines. You know, we had already been through the first two rounds of emissions, and it was kind of a disaster. And then we saw the MX was coming out. Um, International had their disaster of an engine they were talking about. The DD-15 was still pretty new. And I looked at all the engines that were coming out and kind of the design and how they, and the two that I really, really liked a lot back then. I said, I, I think the DD series is going to be an excellent engine. And I think the MX, based on you know their results in Europe, is going to be another great engine. And I said, I think the reason is, these engines were conceived, designed, and built after we knew what the requirements were. So they were built from the right. ground up with the requirements in mind, where every other engine, we just kept slapping stuff on and modifying. And I said, I think these two are going to turn out to be really good engines. And the DD-15 certainly has kind of lived up to that over, you know, almost a decade now. And I, I, I still think the MX has a lot of promise, and I think you do too. It's just it's not that popular of an engine yet. It, it will be. I mean, Packard is putting so many of them in trucks right now, but they're not breaking either. I mean, the, the new ones, I guess they're the first batch weren't so good. But from 13 on, I mean, they just run. They just run and run. They're, yeah. they're, you know, so we don't see them very often here either. That, D, that DD-15, that family, that's a thing called an OM-473 in Europe. It's a, you know, it's a, a Mercedes-Benz engine, Benz engine through and through. You know, I know the previous Mercedes a lot of people didn't like here in the States, but how often does Mercedes fail at anything? You know, it, it's their, they don't build anything bad. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Well, so, you know, maybe, they missed, you. maybe yeah. they missed the mark a little bit, you know, when they were here the first time, but you knew that wasn't going to be the case. You know, you knew that, you know, they're going to, going to make that right. Well, you know, and that was my experience and that was my exact thought when we were, there were two reasons I ended up with the Mercedes in back in 05. The first was they were the last manufacturer that had to meet the emission requirements in 05. You, so when you were ordering trucks in late 04, the Mercedes was the only engine you could still order as a pre-emission engine. And that was why I ordered it because I didn't want EGR. And so I ordered a, a new Freightliner with the Mercedes. The problem was every fleet in the country was doing the same thing and they ran out of engines and they kept pushing my order farther and farther down the line because they were servicing the big fleets first. So they finally ran out of right. engines before they built my truck. And I ended up with the emission version. So 
but but the other thing, I was ordering it for the same reason you just said. Mercedes doesn't mess up anything. I mean, that is a very high quality product, always has been. So even when I was getting the EGR version, I thought, yeah, but you know what? It's still a Mercedes. But unfortunately, that engine was a disaster. Um, they just, I don't know. They just got that one all wrong. I'm not sure what, what happened with that one. Uh, as usual, I'm sure it was compromised. You know, again, that they took their non-emission engine, even for them in that case, and had to do the EGR on it. So who knows? Yeah. So the, were they able to stay longer with their with their previous engine just because it was clean without EGR? How, how were they the last to go to the uh, EGR? What's the story you behind know, that? I'm not, I'm not ever sure if this was true or not, but what I understood was original dates for EGR were later when when all the laws were first written it wasn't supposed to happen and I forget the exact dates but what happened was the big three engine manufacturers Cummins, Cat and Detroit were all caught cheating on a mission test and because of that they pushed the dates up and made them comply sooner okay so it was a form of punishment punishment that makes sense and it was really part of what i think caused so many problems they were forced to bring those engines out ahead of what they were originally told and you know how every project goes i mean you use all the available time you have so if you have to comply sooner i think that was what started part of our problem and we've been playing catch up ever since but the other engine manufacturers, Mercedes specifically, had more time and they had more non-EGR engines available. Uh, and that was why I ordered it. But unfortunately, I didn't get it. And I would have to say, of all the engines I've owned over the years, that certainly makes the top worst I've ever owned. Maybe even the worst. <laughs> I, that was not a good okay. engine for me at all. <laughs> Well, you had to know it wasn't going to stay that way, even with your bad experience. That's the, my feeling on it. It's just uh, right. It, you right. know, it, it, and it's called a Detroit diesel now. But like I said, that engine itself, if you look it up, it's uh, they've actually got like a 625 horse version of it. They run over there in Europe. So there's some some hot rod Mercedes Benz uh, truck over there that's got yeah. a, I think six and a quarter horse version of it. Yeah. Nice. All right. Anything else? Should we get to? Oop, let's get to a break and then we'll come back. Uh, anything else after the break or we want to go right to calls? Let's go right to calls. All right. We'll do that. Stick around. We'll be right back with more stuff. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Ethan and John from Pittsburgh Power with me. We're going to head off to the phones. We're going to start off in Ohio. Herschel, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, is this Pittsburgh Power Hour the destination helps for your truck? It is. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> right, it just comes to me. Well, I said I have too much time to think. This thing is a 2004-14 liter D-Deck 4 Detroit. The engine itself now has right at 1 million. The end frame that Pittsburgh Power does, I just looked, has 294,000. My air compressor went bad. I said, okay, got to change that. Well, my starter was acting up at the same time. Got to change that. I told my guy at the shop, I said, you know, this thing has been getting as high as 4.4 on the OPS on the samples. Go ahead and throw on a fuel pump as well because it's also original, and that's a pretty typical place for them to do that. So they changed it all, got the truck back. Now it starts like a champion because I got the gear reduction starter, but the power driving down a road, going up a hill, I used to be able to go, obviously I don't do it all the time, but it used to go to 43 pounds of boost on the turbo. Now, with that new fuel pump, it would only go to 39, and my pyrometer wasn't coming up like it normally does. And when I would pull, I would have a, it kind of sounded like there's a little guy underneath the hood playing drums. It's a flutter sound. It reminded me of when the old 12.7 would have a bull gear about to go out or an injector having a problem. And I, talk, I called and talked to Ronnie at the shop that I deal with here locally, and I said, Ronnie, I think I got a bad pump because they're all reband. And I told him why, and he said, okay. So he changes it. Now I have the second fuel pump. It now pulls good and smooth going up hills. It's quiet. Uh, the turbo boost, I tried it the other day. It went all the way to 44, and it was still going. I said, okay, that's enough, so I backed out. But still yet, on the pyrometer, and it, it does have a digital pyrometer that Pittsburgh Power put in, so I know I don't have an ECM causing a problem with a sensor. It only go to about 750 degrees on a hard pole at 1,750 RPM getting with it just to see what it would do it never goes above 750 what should it go to it used to go to eight nine maybe even a thousand if you was pulling really hard and you was daydreaming and forgot to pay attention what do you think how high should it be i mean i know it's cold outside but i can't imagine it changing it that much uh hold on a second Hello? let me make sure i brought the oh. That was my fault. Oh. I didn't bring those guys back in. There you go. Uh, see how you are? So. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, now you uh, can talk. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> so does it seem to have all the power that it's always had? It's just making less temp? It, do, it does now since the second new fuel pump reman, of course. It now will right. go to 44 on the turbo boost, no problem. But I'm still not seeing, I haven't even seen 800 degrees yet. I got almost 800 on a hard pull the other day with a heavy trailer. But it, it's just not, just now I was going down a road against the wind at 15 pounds on the turbo. 
and I was at 700 degrees. I don't know. What do you think? How high should it go? What's normal? Well, you definitely want to keep it. You want to keep it under a thousand for sure on the cold side there. I mean, I wouldn't. That's a, that's a good problem to have. I mean, this isn't saying that there's anything really wrong. I, I wonder if you accidentally fixed the boost leak. Exactly. If there was a boost leak because it was straightened out at some point. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know because all I had changed was the air compressor, the fuel pump, the starter. So really, nothing was taken up fuel delivery wise except for the lines onto the fuel pump. That's really no, it. No, no, no. And really nothing. You had an intake. Nothing on the turbo boost, boost side. Oh, uh, the feed for that air compressor, I believe, unless this one's atmospheric. I'm not sure. You had to no, on the this truck, one's now. The, the, this the, one's the a turbo, Columbia Freightliner now. Now, the inlet to the compressor, is that tied into the, the intake manifold, or does it go to a small fitting in the intake piping for the air filters? Oh, I know Detroit boy. hit both. This one is now a non-EGR 14 liter, okay? Oh, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the air compressor itself is fed uh, uh, intake air, and quite often it's boosted air, actually, so it's on the pressure side of the intake. So you may have an advantage. I'll have to open the hood. Up. Yeah. Okay. That's the only thing I can think of. That's I mean, my best uh Yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, so... <laughs> But it's a good problem to have. I wouldn't worry about it unless you're looking for some more power. Then we could we could give you some more fuel to get that temp back up. But I wouldn't worry about it. It is going to go up with the weather. When it gets hotter out, you're going to probably see a similar increase. You know, if you go up 50 degrees, it's going to go up 50 degrees somewhere in that neighborhood. So I wouldn't uh, – yeah, I've, I've always heard Bruce say that you have to have fuel to make heat. And yep. with this one being down to 700, 750 at the most on a hard pull – it just made me wonder, is there some reason why I'm not getting the fuel delivery? And also, my mileage seems to be down, but you have to take in effect. It's cold. I got winter blend fuel and all that stuff, so that really doesn't hold a whole lot of water right now either. Well, that could also be part of the reduction in temp as well. That winter, winter blend fuels a little less energy in it. But you're making good boost. If, the fuel, if you had a fuel delivery issue, you'd, you'd drop boost as well. And the fact that your boost has actually improved or is it the same as it's always been tells me that we either had a small boost leak that was inadvertently fixed or maybe you are seeing some of the uh, effects of the winter blend fuel as well already. And you're seeing it on the on the okay, tank gauge. Because it, it used to go to eight or 900 degrees on a hard pole, and now it doesn't. And I just wondered, does the outside temperature really change it that much? This one does have the turbo boot and the wrap, the first three feet of the exhaust. Right. Yeah, I it, just wondered it should if the outside air is really changing it that much. Okay. And how much do you see on that? Is it proportionate? Mm, not that much. No? So 50 degrees isn't 50 degrees? Not quite. Not quite? Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe that's more thought. But, well, yeah, I'll... something uh, – have you put a charge air cooler on it recently or anything? Oh, I put a Duralite on it, but that's been some years ago, and – the okay. last it was tested was when you guys did the overhead, but that was only about 100,000 miles ago, so it hadn't been real, right, real right. long. So it's fine. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I don't have it. Good enough. I'll just keep an eye on it when it warms up and see what it does then. See what it, see what it goes to? Yeah, and let me know. I'm curious. Uh, and, again, it's a good problem to have. I mean, we're usually fighting temperature, not worried about not making enough. 
So I, I think you're good. Okay. If you're making 44 pounds of boost and the temp staying nice and low, I think you're in good you're in good shape there. Okay, good enough. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, let's head off to Colorado. Jeff, welcome to the program. Hey guys, uh, thanks for taking the call. I've got a question about my coolant and my oil temp. Um, I have an 06 uh, Pete, it's a 379 with a, an ISX, it's a CM870. Um, I've got uh, uh, drop the stacks, I've got the high flow uh, muffler, I've got the uh, fleet air filters, uh, have the 550 program, and uh, the dampener and uh, balancer on uh, the crankshaft. And uh, when I'm most of the time, uh, my coolant temperature will be at either 180 or 190, and my oil temperature will sit about 220, uh, maybe 230. Um, but when I am eastbound on I-70 and I um, we lost him. Oh, are you there? Uh, yeah, it sounds like now. Gotcha. Okay, gotcha. Uh, I heard you say I think we lost him. So where should I pick up? Eastbound on I-70 was the last thing you heard. Okay, gotcha. So when I'm pulling, when I'm pulling Vail, I am uh, I'm in seventh low. I've got uh, 1500 RPMs, 40 miles an hour, and the truck just pulls. But that oil temp is always dancing right at 250, where I get that uh, warning light and I go into a D rate. Um, I've called in before and asked you guys about the oil temperatures, but I'm just wondering, I've heard a couple of guys make uh, comments to me um, just about the difference between my coolant temp and my oil temp. Um, see if there's, you know, some reason. Because I'm generally running about 40 degrees uh, difference. Um, and I know you guys have told me 250 doesn't bother you, but when I'm on that 10% part of veil, um, you know, I just, if I get into a D rate when I'm at that part of the climb, you know, uh, you know, I might help. So I'm wondering if there's anything in the oil system that uh, I could take a look at or something that might not be, might not be functional. Hold that, hold that thought. We're going to get to a break. We'll come back and talk about that right after this. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Ethan and John with me from Pittsburgh Power. We're talking with Jeff in Colorado. All right, guys, go ahead. Couple things to check, Jeff. Make sure your uh, oil coolers, the double element, they, there was a quite a few ISXs were built with a single element cooler. That was only about half the length of that uh, cavity in the side of the block for the for the cooler. And I believe you could take there's a thermostat in there too that I think you could disable or take out. So if you start from a lower temperature, you might get to the top of the hill before you get to that 250 there. And if all that fails, uh, we can program the limit. To where that D rate comes in to be much higher, so we could pretty much eliminate the D rate that way as well. But uh, you know, I'd like you to watch your gauge if we do that for sure. But uh, that's something we could uh, could also do for you. All right, gotcha. How would I check to find? How would I just get the the build sheet from uh, Peter Build off of my VIN to find out if it's got a single or a double element? Yeah, from a your engine serial number should be able to tell. You know, you should be able to look it up in the parts list and. There'll be a note in there as to whether it was single or uh, or double. I know when you look it up, one that had the single will show the picture of a single. And I think they give you the number, the part number, to put the, the full full length one in there. Okay. And then uh, if um, if I do have the single, is that an easy to add on, or is that a big modification? It bolts right in. Yeah, you pull that one out. I mean, it's not a, it's not a super easy job. It's not bad. You have to drain all the fluids of that hole. Uh, casting comes off the side of the block that houses the cooler, and you, what you find if yours is a single, it only it only fills up the first half of that cavity, and you get the double, and it just bolts right in in place of it. Okay. All right, got it. Appreciate you guys. No problem. All right, we are off to Iowa. Randy, welcome to the program. Hi. In an oil sample, I was wondering if you could take a look at it. All right, it's an ISX. What year? It is a O2 emission engine. It's a crate engine. For, it's in a glider. It's you said O2 emission engine, so this it, it's got EGR. No, no it don't have pre-emission. EGR. Yeah, pre-emission. It's an O2 emissions. O2 oh, spec, oh, oh guess got, it. got it. O2 spec. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. And it makes more sense why this is such a nice, clean sample. Um, <laughs> really, <laughs> just had to get my dig in. Um, yeah, I, no fuel dilution whatsoever. Soot is at 0.3. Viscosity is perfect. The, Base holds up really well. Um, the tin. No oxidation, no nitrate. You know, tin is such an odd, um, it's so unusual to see tin. And it went from one to four. We have to remember this is parts per million. So I, I wouldn't get too crazy about this. I mean, I have very, very seldom ever see an engine where something tin is the only thing that's wearing. Normally, we would see all the wear metals elevated, and tin would be one of them. But I almost never see it by itself. Um, it would, that'd be like uh, piston flashing, possibly some bearing overlay. Um, it, like I say, it's such an odd. 
such an odd metal to have there by itself. John, do you know anything about why we would get just tin? I really don't know. I, I, that's uh, that, that's an odd one to be alone. But again, keep in mind, we went from, you know, running one or two parts per million to four. I, I, I just would keep an eye on it. I mean, I there's and there's no reason. There's certainly nothing in the oil that's causing the wear. The oil is in excellent shape. So if anything, it's going to be just a part failing for some other reason. It's not oil quality. But I, I have a feeling it's just a little bit of an anomaly. Did you happen to, do you remember when you took this sample, were you topped off or were you down some on oil? No, I was full. Okay. Because sometimes oil. if you take a sample just a gallon low, it'll concentrate some of the wear metals more. I, I wouldn't worry about this. It's a really clean sample. I would just watch it and see what happens next time on the tin. Is that normal uh, for the, the chromium, the chrome is starting to come down from the rings and stuff. Is that normal for an engine to take this long to break in on the rings? Um, yeah, it, it can. And it, again, I'm just going to say the same thing. We were at five parts per million on chromium. Then we went to three, three, and now we're at two. These are such tiny, tiny amounts. When you think about it, we changed three parts per million. These are really small numbers. I, I don't get too worried about these. And that one's moving in the right direction. We're seeing less of it, so it's just cleaning up in the oil. I, I think you've got a really healthy engine here, and I, I don't see any problems. Okay. All right. I won't worry about it, then. Appreciate your help. Yeah. Yep. I wouldn't. I think uh, that's a great-looking sample. Let's go to... California. Alec, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for uh, speaking with me this morning. I've got a uh, odd combination truck, uh, 2013 uh, T700 Kenworth, which was only built for about three years. Uh, and then I've got the MX 12.9485 horse, uh, 13 speed, three and a quarter rear ends, and I've got the super wide drive tires on it. Um, I've put about 50,000 miles on the truck since I've had it, so I've got a good baseline as far as where my fuel economy is at now, and I'm wanting to know, is Pittsburgh Power a place that I can go to to find upgrades for this specific combination with it being so rare of a motor, so rare of a truck, um, if that makes sense. I'm looking for like, you know, I mean, I can't, I, I've looked on Fleet Air Filter, I can't find anything from them. I've looked on you know, it just, it, it, it's kind of boggling my mind as far as where to go, or am I kind of basically stuck for the time being with this truck? We haven't got much for that, unfortunately. Um, yeah, we, we're, we're not there with that either. So you kind of are, uh, we could do the usuals, you know, we could do some maintenance work on it. We could do an overhead for you. We could add a fast to it. We could, uh, have a manifold, uh, ported, polished and coated for you we can uh, we're working on a damper for the mx engine we don't have that yet though either so we're in process we've got the ability to communicate with it we could do a little work with the ecm uh we're not quite up to speed on tuning on these yet and uh yeah so we're 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 uh, still coming up to speed on the mx as well okay yeah because i was i had heard where y'all were talking earlier and it sounds like the mx just hasn't become 
that popular of a motor yet. And it, it's unfortunate because I mean, I love the motor. It's just, you know, I'd like to try and increase from six and a quarter to something a little better as fuel, as far as fuel economy wise. So why don't you, uh, could you shoot me an email and stay in touch with me? We're, this is going to be a work in progress. So I could let you know as soon as we come up with, or as we come up with, uh, with product for you. Uh, just send, just yeah, shoot an no, email absolutely. to John at, yeah, John at PittsburghPower.com. I'm getting a list together of some potential MX customers, and uh, we'll uh, we'll keep you posted as we as we you know come up with things for that engine. Oh, that would be awesome! Thank you so much. Yep, no problem. We'll talk to you soon. All right, we are off to Alabama. Wallace, welcome to the program. Yeah, appreciate y'all taking my call, there, guys. Uh, Got a 1988 Peterbilt that we've completely restored. I've uh, got a 315 Cummins in it. The only problem we have here with this truck is uh, it, we got uh, a seven-speed transmission. Uh, we've got 342 rears in it. And the problem with uh, this seven-speed here is our start-off availability. If you get on a little rise and, you know, we pull flatbeds uh, roughly 80,000 pounds, a lot of times grossed out. Uh, we have a start-off availability there. We get a little, uh, between the, when you're trying to get out on the clutch area on the little rise or a hard pull there, you, you get a, a jumping, you know, it's just hard to get started off. Keep the power divider in, and then that helps a lot. We was wanting to change this transmission to probably a 10-speed or either a 13. And uh, like I say, this is a 315, a Formula 315 Cummins in it. And so we was trying to see which would be the best transmission, either a 10-speed overdrive uh, or either a, a 13 there uh, and, and to help on the start-off availability. Hmm. I'm personally a fan of the 13-speed. There's a, there's a chart. Eaton's got a chart on their website of all the different gear ratios before you pick the one that you want. And uh, look for one with a nice low low or low first in it. Uh, I don't know offhand, but I, I'd go ahead and do the, uh, personally, I'd go with the 13 speed. I, I would agree with that. We're getting to a break. If you're going to switch, you might as well go for the 13. Labor costs are all the same, and transmission cost isn't that much different. We're, uh, we're going to get to a break. There's the music. We'll come right back and get to more stuff right after this. Stick around. Kevin Rutherford. All right, a quick heads up. We're heading into the fourth segment. So at the end, I'll say goodnight, goodbye, all that stuff. Don't hang up. We are going to come back and do a second hour. We've got a lot of general questions. If you want to jump in, uh, you probably can't get through. Looks like we've got tons of questions lined up. So hang around for the second hour. Here we go. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. 
We're down to our final segment. We're going to get right back to some phone calls. Uh, I was going to go back and make sure we got his questions answered, but it looks like we lost that call. So we're going to move on. We are off to Oklahoma. Robert, welcome to the program. Yes, thanks for taking Robert, my call. I, uh, yep. Yes, I am. Hello. Go ahead. Hello. Yes, you hear me? Yep. Go ahead, Robert. All righty. I, uh, uh, I have a truck that has just over a million miles on it. It's a uh, uh, 60 series Detroit, uh, 14 later pre-EGR and um, she doesn't burn any oil but, uh, the oil pressure is uh, you know rather low um, driving down the road it's it's like less than 50 and when you're at a at an idle it's like you know in the upper 20s um, I'm wondering when I should do a end frame or should I just do a bottom end or what should I do on that Uh, if your blow by is okay and you're not consuming any any oil and you're not uh, consuming any coolant, I would simply put a set of bearings in it. John, does that sound like low oil pressure? That sounds pretty normal to me. It, it's not that low. I mean, it's not low low. It's uh, again, it's you know, Detroit's do run a little higher than some of the others. So, but yeah, I would uh, you know if you're concerned about that, I would I'd put a set of bearings, I'd roll a set of bearings into it, and it'll probably pick it up five or ten psi on both. But um, to me, it doesn't sound like a very big concern either, as as Kevin said. Okay. All righty. So what, you would just leave it? And, you know, the the motor itself has 2 million miles on it. When I do an in-frame, would you you do an out-of-frame instead of an in-frame? On a series, probably uh, your your rear structure is probably starting to weep some oil, and it it probably had 2 million miles would probably be worthwhile to to get it out of there and check the tr- crank for straightness and the line bore. And, yeah, it would definitely be worth, you know, if you've got a full $2 million on it, I'd, uh, I'd probably go ahead and do an out-of-frame on it. Gotcha. All righty, man. I sure appreciate it. Thanks. No problem. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. I've had lots of uh, Detroit's run 40 pounds of oil pressure and bearings were fine, and, you know, they ran forever that way. $2 million miles, though. Did he say, has it already had an in-frame? He said he had just over a million on the end frame, I thought. Okay, got it. All right, let's uh, let's see how many calls we can get to here. Let's go to Florida. Randy, welcome to the program. Hey, afternoon. I had one for Bruce there. I know his mind works real well in these directions. I've always questioned uh, torque, and I've always been told that your best horsepower comes at your maximum torque RPM. You find this true or got a good basis on that i'll I'll let ethan answer this he's got opinions on horsepower and torque well <laughs> bruce isn't in right now but you're going to get your your peak oh, torque yeah. up at the 18 or peak horsepower at the 18 or 1900 rpm range but most of the time you're going to run it you know between the 14 and you know 1250 rpms so you're actually going to have more torque down there than horsepower and that is because you better, I, you know, I know 
I read Bruce's old book way back, so I've been following him for a long time. Anyway, <laughs> maybe to open up a whole nother light about how engines really work. Uh, but on, on fuel mileage and all that, is that, that because it's, uh, I mean, it seems to be that used to be your best best fuel mileage range right there where you're, uh, they, they, because it's a sweet spot now, uh, where the engine wants to run the best. Is that just because it's got a lot cleaner, more thorough burn there, or burning all the way to the bottom of the power stroke? Or? You've got it. Yeah, you've got, you've got a nice, efficient burn there. That's where the engine's the tappiest, and you're right, right at peak torque or right past it. It's normally where you want to be because then when you load up, you go right through peak torque. So you're on that uh -huh. side of the curve. Yeah. And the engine's most yeah. efficient there. Every engine's got, a, like I say, a sweet spot or a place where it's most efficient. And that's generally where peak torque happens. Yeah. Well, I had never, I haven't heard that in a long time. I know way back, that's what I think Caterpillar used to tell you that, that's usually where your peak torque is, where you're going to get your best fuel mileage. That's, that's the happiest the motor runs right there. And that seems to run pretty true. You know, of course, mine. I'm got an older engine, you know, they're in that fourteen, fourteen five range seems like the way they want to be. But, uh, that was my experience. You know, some of I just, just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That that's a that's a good rule. All right. Let's head off to Pennsylvania. Tom, welcome to the program. Hey Kevin. Uh got a quick question. Uh, I, I was listening to the show and uh, you guys were talking about a boost for the turbo. Um, I have a 2001 Cat C15 uh, 6NZ engine. Uh, my boost, uh, the most I'm pulling is around 28. Is that okay for this or should I be pulling more? Uh, what horsepower is it set at? 550. That's probably about stock. That's about right of it. A little low. Is Nothing it? terrible, though. It's on the lower end. Okay. Um, typically, you see about uh -huh. 32, 33 on one of them. On a 550? Okay. What turbo do you got on there? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I just got the truck about uh, a couple months ago, so first time having a cat and, and everything, so I was just... It's worth looking into to make sure the boost gauge is reading right. A lot of those cats have a little damper that goes to the boost gauge, and they tend to plug up. Um, and they can make it read low, wrong, or stick, with, make it look like the boost is sticking. Yep. The uh, fitting that goes into the, it's not really a manifold, but into the head on the intake side of the head on the, on the 6NZ there looks just like a regular adapter fitting for a piece of plastic airline. But it's actually got a diffuser on the inside. It's got a centered bronze filter, basically, that dampens the flow. And quite often, they, those will fill up with carbon. So check that. You can replace it with a regular fitting. It really doesn't uh, doesn't hurt anything. Just use a regular fitting in there. But you go ahead and do that. And check for leaks. If this truck's new to you, one of the first things you want to do is uh, check for boost leaks. If you're here in Pennsylvania, you can get by. We could do a uh, smoke test for you. But, uh, you know, if you ever think you're a little low on, 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 on boost or... The EGT is a little bit higher than the first. The first place to always look is uh, is for a, for a boost leak. Those uh, charge air coolers are so vulnerable out there where they are, and you've got rubber hoses and and hose clamps and all sorts of things between the turbo and the intake that uh, are prone to fail. That uh, that's that's one you know it's good maintenance to just always look, and especially if it's a truck that's new to you and if you're suspicious of the boost being low. I would I would okay, uh, look now for one boost more leaks. Thing. Mm -hmm. uh... I have uh, two fuel tanks. My left fuel tank's got 120 gallons. My right one has 80. Um, 
for some reason, my right fuel tank always gets to empty, and my left fuel tanks are around. When, when the right's at empty, the left one's at about half. Uh, I had a leak in my uh, fuel line. I just replaced that last week, and I thought that would maybe help it, um, but it's, it seems like it's, I, I have the same problem. Uh, should I, what, what, how should I uh, attack this problem? You've got uh, what's called a splitter valve on there on the return side that tries to even up fuel flow back to the tanks. So you might want to take that apart and clean it or replace it. It's not terribly expensive, but it's a little T-valve uh, where the return fuel comes from the engine and then splits off to each tank. And if you've got a little dirt in that or if it's not sealed up or if uh, it's not flowing evenly, you're going to draw from one more. You're going to fill the other one with return fuel quicker and it won't pull evenly. And if look at the health of the hoses as well. If they're all original, you may want to look into changing the hoses. Um, a number of things. It's a, those are really simple systems, but they tend to, to do what you've got there. They'll not, not draw or they will not return evenly, and you'll end up filling one tank and draining the other. It's a it's an ongoing issue. Uh, my, my personal truck that I owned last, I just went ahead and put a crossover tube on and was done with it. So uh, it was. That's uh, tricky. You could chase that for a long time. But uh, John, you first know, step it, is making sure everything's clean. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, in the uh, vents as well, they have little check valve vents on them. So you want to make sure those check valve vents are free, because even even a clogged vent on one of the tanks will affect how it returns, and will return more to one tank than the other, and you'll eventually fill it and empty the other. But uh, yeah, go ahead, Kevin. No. Before I stepped on you there. I, I, uh, no, I was just saying, it's so funny that when I get this call, I get this call all the time. It is a fairly simple system, but every time we troubleshoot this, it seems to be something different. Like, how many things can go <laughs> wrong know. that cause this to happen? But it seems like no matter how many times I get this question, we keep coming up with some new reason why it happens. <laughs> it, it's just physics. It's a fluid displacement. And, you know, it yeah. should... Uh, yeah, theoretically, it should draw evenly, but think of everything that has to be right for it to draw evenly. I mean, again, a vent, it could be anything. Uh, you're pulling on both tanks at the same time. It's just, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Well, and like and that's, you got sometimes the they'll pull unevenly, sometimes they'll return unevenly. It's uh, for something that seems so simple, it never seems to be simple when you have to troubleshoot it. But uh, there's the music. That means I am all out of time. I've got to get out of here. We will see you next show. Thanks to the guys from Pittsburgh Power, John and Ethan, and we'll see you next time. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford. All right, everybody, hang on. We're going to do a second hour here. Right now, it looks like we have lots of questions. If we have some openings, I will let you know. Here we go. Your money, your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs. Back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let's Truck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. 
We take your calls and answer your questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, taxes, technology, health and fitness on the road, getting started as an owner-operator, finding freight, working with brokers, getting your authority, you name it, we'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and ask the question. And uh, these weeknight hours go by pretty quick, so I think I'm just going to get right to the phone calls tonight and see what it is you want to talk about. Let's go to Kansas to get started. Jason, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing today? Doing good. What can I help you with? Well, I had a question. You were talking a few shows ago about state income tax. I am a road driver for one of the LTL companies and spend a lot of nights away from home. And I was wondering where the line is between tax evasion and legal versus for renting a room in a state that doesn't have state income tax. You know, that there is no answer to that. The, the rules are so okay. vague. The rules are so vague about this that I, I think one of the examples I used, there is nothing that would stop me from owning property or even just renting places in 10 states. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but if I wanted to do that, nothing would stop me from doing that. At that point, if I do have multiple residences, who's to say which is my primary residence? I mean, the IRS can't tell me that. So if I decide I'm going right. to have multiple residences, then you get to pick the one. And honestly, the IRS doesn't care about this. The IRS gets their money. That's federal. It's the states. But the states can't keep up with who's where and whose residence is where. So, you know, what's tax evasion on this issue? There's no answer. If you have a residence in a state without a state income tax and you choose to make that your primary residence, then it's your primary residence. I mean, there, there's, there isn't any place we can go to look up those rules. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was just wondering, I mean, the wife and kid live in state, but if I moved, I was just wondering if, you know, we, if they'd start giving me a hard time about it. Yeah, there there are some rules in the IRS about establishing a tax home, but that doesn't really have anything to do with paying state tax. It has to do with establishing a tax home as far as, you know, what nights you're truly away from, you know, home for per diem. Um, and then we get into this whole group of complicated rules about temporary tax homes. So if you go to the IRS and try to figure this out, it gets more confusing, but that has nothing to do with state tax. That has to do with some of the federal tax rules around residents. But again, okay. I, you okay. know, I, I've looked everywhere. I've tried to figure this out. And I, I, as long as you have a residence, like I said, there was a time when I had a business in Florida and we were uh, renting a long-term RV space. So when we were down there, we parked the RV there and we stayed there because the trucks were there. The business was there. We had a home in Ohio that we had on the market to sell. We had just bought the home in Oregon and we were on the road a lot in an RV. So who's to say 
which one of those places is my residence? Well, for the time, I, I chose to count Florida. My business was there. I had lived there 14 years anyway, um, and, and I still spent a lot of time there. So, and Florida has no yeah. state income tax. So as long as I had something going on in Florida, I continued to use Florida as my state of residence. Okay. Yeah, I just was curious, you know, I don't like to give away any more money than I need to, so. Exactly. Yeah. If we had a, uh, okay. if we had a fair tax, we wouldn't even have to talk about any of this. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time, Kevin. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's head off to Minnesota. Dean, welcome to the program. I got to do an A1C uh, in the next couple days before the first of the year. And I want to know, I'm on your, uh, your uh, health check plan. I want to okay. know what other blood tests I should have done um, just to, you know, secondary know what, you know, because I filled that report out last night, and I was wondering if there was anything on a blood test you wanted checked out. Okay, so are you on our gold highway plan, or are you on the free evaluation? No, I'm on the, the lesser, the two, the $300 ones. Okay, the silver highway then. Okay. Um, when do you have to go for the blood test? I lose my insurance the first of the year, so I got to do it this week. Okay. Okay. Um, Let's do this. Um, let me, after the show, let me look at, if you just filled it out last night, then I'm sure I haven't looked at it yet. I've looked at a bunch of them, but I, I haven't gotten to that one, I'm sure. Um, here's the thing about testing. Testing is expensive. I, I would love to go in and have everything tested just to see, because I'm a numbers guy and I like information. You know, I would like to test uh, vitamin D levels. I would like to test mineral levels. I would like to test fatty acid balance. I would um, like to test C-reactive protein. You know, I'd like to do a nice in-depth test on lipid profile and cholesterol. I, I could go on and on and on. But the tests that I just named probably were already up over the $2,000 range. So you know, it, it's one thing to say, well, I'm having blood drawn anyway. Let's just run a bunch of tests on it. I'd love to, but it can get expensive really fast. So what I would rather do is take the information that you filled out, look through it, and then see if there's something that jumps out at me. Um, for example, if I'm seeing a bunch of symptoms that lead me to believe you might be vitamin D deficient, then I would say, let's do a vitamin D test to verify that. So I, I, I want to target those tests based on what you're seeing as symptoms. There's no point in just going and looking for stuff when we're not seeing any symptoms that would even indicate it. Now, there are some things that there are no symptoms for. So we, we may want to test for some of those, but most of the time, um, you know, you just went through this process. We asked you a lot of questions. We gather a lot of information. 
normally I can look through there and say, yeah, I, I really think we need to check uh, fatty acid balance. And, and so let's go ahead and test for that while you're doing the blood test. But, but just randomly, I, I don't want to recommend anything because like I said, you could, you can spend a lot of money having stuff tested. All right. Now I was just kind of wondering because I've been putting it off and now I've only got two more days or three days left. So yeah, Let, let's do this. If you could, yeah, definitely do the A1C. If you could um, send it an email to support at Let's Truck, and I will get on this today and get back to you with a response by email. Um, and if I see anything in there that I think really warrants spending some extra money, um, I'll let you know. Otherwise, like I said, it's I'd love to test for everything but it gets really, really expensive. Every test you want costs more. You know, you, you only have to draw the blood one time, but every single thing you want tested, there's a cost. And almost every test is, I mean, I, there are hardly any that are less than $100. Some of them are three and 400. So I, again, I don't wanna recommend just anything. I wanna look at your history and see if there's something that jumps out that we should be looking. Let's go to Illinois. Bob, welcome to the program. Yes, Kevin, uh, thanks for taking my call. I think you might have a few oil samples there for a rear end. Yes, I do. Uh, let me, I think we're coming up on a break. So let me take a look at these and we will get to a break and we'll come right back and we will talk about these stick around we'll be right back with more stuff kevin rutherford Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. I was talking with Bob in Illinois. Bob, are you still with me? Yes, I am. All right. So let's go through these. I've got three samples here. I'm looking at the first one, which is labeled as the Power Divider Truck 928 Differential. Does that make sense? Correct. Yeah. I'm yeah, I bought the okay. truck used and with 1350000 on it, 
So I went ahead and pulled uh, the oil samples on it and the uh, front power divider came back at a three, as you can see there. So I went ahead and changed the oil, ran it for about 13,000 miles, pulled that second sample. Um, I put mobile Delvac um, synthetic in it and then I ran 13,000 and it came back at a, a level two which I didn't think was too bad. So I went ahead and put another 32,000 miles on it and pulled that third sample you see, but now it's coming back at a level three. So yeah, and like coming back for, it's coming back for high iron. Um, one of the things they can do, uh, so when they test for wear metals, they're using a test that determines parts per million and the the wear metal is tiny 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 in there in fact it's so small we can't even filter it out that's why iron or, or wear metals always increase over time because we can't filter them out they're just too fine but in a differential or a transmission sometimes they're actually bigger pieces now, I'm not talking about chunks that we could hold in our hand, but I'm talking about pieces that are much bigger than this fine, you know, metal that we're normally measuring. So what they can do is they can do a more extensive test where they actually take a piece of that metal out of the oil and they run a, a more in-depth analysis of it. And then they can sometimes, not always, but they can sometimes say it came from this specific part inside the transmission. So there's lots of parts that are made out of iron, but the iron composition of each part can be slightly different. So we can say, yes, there's too much iron. If we test even further, we can say it came from this gear, so or this bushing, or whatever the part may be, so it helps us know where the problem really is. But what we do know is there's a problem. There's no way we should have gotten this much wear metal after um, an oil change and not that many miles. So, you know, 30-some thousand miles on a uh, differential is nothing. We, we shouldn't see wear metals climb fast. Um, my guess is this truck has like, what, 1.3 million on it or so? Yeah, 1.4 now at this point. I bought it at 1.35. Yeah, my guess so, is I got that. At, at least, so this should have had a fluid change at 500,000. It should have had a fluid change at a million, and it's coming up on another one. My guess is at least one and maybe both of those got skipped, and we were just seeing excess wear because of it. Um, you might want to, and I forget the cost, um, you might want to talk to Polaris, call the lab, and ask them about that secondary test that they can do and see what the cost is. It may be worth doing that because it's way cheaper than tearing a transmission apart to figure out what's wrong. Or a differential, Different, I'm sorry. Uh, differential, yeah. yeah. 
Um, another thing, too, is this truck has 279s in it now. It originally didn't okay. have that, so I'm thinking at some point they changed that. Would it be customary to change those inner bearings when you change the gears? Uh, it really, I've seen all kinds of things when people change. How do we know that the gears were changed out because the tag says it should have had something else? I called the manufacturer and by the serial number, they looked it up and said it was manufactured with a um, 342s, I think, something like that, if I remember right. That, so what transmissions in this? A 13 speed. Can you run it in 13th gear? Uh, going pretty fast, <laughs> you know, 80 miles okay. an hour. I've done the numbers okay. with you before. Okay, I okay. Cruise, so this I cruise well, we're, at, uh, we're, six kind of cut out. You kind of cut out there. I'm sorry. Okay, so this is one of those trucks where somebody actually did what we recommend, which is unusual. They took a truck with mm -hmm. probably a double overdrive transmission and put 279s, which is more of a direct drive gear. Um, my, my question was, was it the original transmission? Probably is then. But at 342s, a double overdrive 13, that was um, pretty normal. Now it has the 279s. Um, it's hard yeah. to say what they replaced if they just pulled out the gear set. It, it's really tough to say. So I, I wouldn't even want to guess at that. Um, I, I think I would probably do that secondary test on the metals and that may tell us whether we really need to tear the thing apart or not. I don't know how much that would cost, but if it would be cheaper for me to put wheel bearings in it, you think that would be a way to go, thinking maybe that the wheel bearings, do wheel bearings wear out faster than the internal bearings of the differential? Uh, not if they're, I, I've seen wheel bearings last forever. If they're, you know, we have no leaks, the fluid's been kept clean. I've seen bearings last forever. So I, I wouldn't think this is bearings. I think this is probably okay. something inside the differential itself, but it, it's, it's, I'm pretty sure your cheapest troubleshooting here is going to be the secondary oil analysis. Okay. All right. Good deal. You got one quick question too. We're on the gold uh, highway program and we talked to you yeah. and we both, my wife and I both came back with vanilla as being a high uh, sensitivity. Yes. Do you know what? Do you remember? Yeah. What? What? And we don't know of anything in our diet that contains vanilla. We are still waiting, and I'm sure it's the holidays that are kind of screwing everything up. We started noticing because we're doing so many of these. All of a sudden, everybody was coming back with a sensitivity to vanilla, and we I can't find the cross reference on that one yet. There are some really, really strange cross-reaction kind of stuff. Like there, there are several fruits that will show up when really what you're reacting to is almonds. So there are just some strange cross-reactions. And uh, now that we're starting to see so many of those, I'm trying to get an entire list. But I'm not getting a response back from the lab yet. And I'm sure it's because of the holidays. So as soon as we know what that vanilla is, we will let you know. All right.
right. Well, great. I sure appreciate everything you do. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's head off to Georgia. Steve, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for taking my call. I got a tax question I need to ask you. Um, I've been uh, doing some charitable giving to an organization that has the 501c3. Um, That is tax deductible, isn't it? Yes, you're giving either um, money or goods, correct? Yes, it's money, yes. Okay. And the reason I ask that is some people believe that they can also volunteer time and then deduct some sort of value of that time, and you can't do that. It has to be something tangible. Either has to be cash or something that we could go look up a fair market value for. Cash is easy. I mean, if you give cash, then you get to take that deduction. Now, the other thing you have to know is you have to be able to itemize on your tax return before that counts. Uh, What do you mean by that? So the IRS gives us now... I'm not talking about business now. Set business aside because this is an issue on the personal side of the tax return. The IRS gives us a standard deduction amount. And the standard deduction is easy. You just deduct it. Or if you have more itemized deductions, then you would itemize, meaning I would look at mortgage interest, real estate tax, state income tax that I paid, um, non-reimbursed employee expenses. And, And if I added up all of those items, would they be more than the standard deduction that the IRS gives me? And if they are, then I would itemize. If they're not, then I might as well just take the standard deduction because it's more. Um, So in order to deduct charitable, you have to get over that threshold of itemized deductions. When we come back, I'll ask you some questions and see if we can figure that out. Stick around. We'll be right back with Kevin Russell. I'm Kevin Rutherford. I was talking with Steve in Georgia. So, Steve, let me uh, ask you a couple questions. What is your filing status? Single, married, head of household? Um, I'm sole proprietor, single, single head of household. Okay, so you are a head of household, which means your standard deduction is nine thousand three hundred dollars, and you you are an owner operator, right? You said sole proprietor. Yep. Yes, sir. Okay, so that means your per diem deduction goes on your Schedule C for the business. So you're going to get credit for that. That means once we look at the personal side, 
can we come up with more than $9,300 worth of personal deductions? So do you pay a lot of mortgage interest? Um, house paid for. House is paid for. So no mortgage interest. Um, are you in a place with outrageously high real estate taxes? No, sir. And... I'm, I'm assuming we're not talking about donating more than $9,000. No, sir. The odds are you're probably uh, not itemized. The odds are you're just going to end up taking that standard head of household deduction, which is $9,300. So then the charitable won't matter. Okay. I got you. Okay. All right, that's what I was uh, wanting to know. Another question, another question I had right quick was: uh, um, there was a uh, third-party, third-party debt collector. You know how they buy the, buy all these debts in a bundle and then try to go after you with it and everything like that. Uh, go after yes. you for the amount in which those uh, uh, I'm being sued in the process of being sued. Uh, with that on a on a debt that I already settled with one of the credit cards, and they went and brought that old debt and said it's not not settled. Now they they have to ha uh, show the burden of proof that I owe them the debt and everything like that once once we go to court and all of that. But every money that I spend in that area, if I have to spend any money in that area, that is also tax deductible. Also. Um. No, and we would still come back to the itemized issue about, you know, whether or not you can itemize or whether or not you're going to take the standard deduction. Let me ask you something about the debt. Um, what state was this debt incurred in? Alabama. And how old is it? Oh, God, I would say this debt maybe about four or five years ago. Uh, well, I, I, I got to go look up real quick. Um, every, okay, so Alabama on uh, debt collection, every state has a different statute of limitations, how long somebody can, can attempt to collect from you. Um, Alabama happens to be six years. Is it possible that this debt is older than six years? Uh, it's going to be close, but I doubt that it may be six years. So here's the thing. If it's close, you know, once you pass that date, there is absolutely nothing they can do. And in fact, that may be why they're getting so aggressive right now, because they've looked it up and they know the date is coming close. So they're going to make a big push to try to get anything out of you they can. But if you've already paid this to a different agency and then they happen to just buy up the debt not knowing this had already been collected on um, that you may end up having to deal with this in court but um, once it goes past that statute of limitations you can basically ignore them there's nothing they can do after it, it passes that point so you may want to double check the dates and see how close you are on this Let's go to Georgia. Charles, welcome to the program. Hey, hey Kevin. Uh, 
Uh, sorry, I wasn't listening for a long time. The I listened to your several of your speeches at uh, uh, some of the trucker uh, conventions. The which yeah. CMC in May, and you talked me out of leasing, which is a good thing. Thank, thank you, thank you for that. And you talked me out of financing a, a newer truck. I know, I know you're rethinking some of that because uh, some of the truck engines uh, seem to be finally getting on board with the uh, emissions controls and stuff like that. But I'm still focused on a pre-emissions truck, you know. And another thing that happened, I went to CMC in May, and you had the president of one of the larger trucking financing companies give a small segment. Uh, it's like 20 or 30 minutes. But his talk was really, really eye-opening. And, you know, I didn't have bad credit. I just didn't have credit because I lived within my means for, some, for so long. I didn't finance anything. Right. So... I signed up for I signed up for Credit Karma and I only had like something in the six hundred low six hundreds, and I looked at that handout that the gentleman from the truck financing company passed out. And if you finance a truck and your credit rating was in the six hundreds, you would have to work, drive double logs, never take any off time, never take any any vacation, just to make the payments just to make the financing cost. The difference between the financing cost between a 600 and a 700 plus was just, it was eye-opening. And I was ready to pull well, the trigger to buy a truck last summer. Okay, go ahead, Kevin. I, 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 I was going to say, because I don't, I, I don't have the handout in front of me and I don't remember the numbers. Do you happen to remember what the numbers were as far as the difference in interest rate? No, but it was just when I was sitting there in the class and I was looking at that handout and I saw the difference between a 600 credit score and a 700 plus, the cost of the financing was just the, the, the bottom fell out of my stomach and I said, well, I, let, I can't do that. Yeah, yeah, I can do that for a few months, but I can't do that for two or three years. You know the reason saying? that I ask that, yeah, the reason that I ask that, I, I'm not a fan of paying an outrageously high interest rate either. But I've helped people over the years, and let's let's say that if you have excellent credit, you can get a loan at eight percent, and if you have lousy credit, you have to pay twenty percent. Well, that sounds outrageous, but if we're talking about a twenty-five thousand dollar truck. It's just not that big of a deal. It really, when you look at the dollar amount, now if we're talking about a $150,000 truck, then it's a huge deal. Then I would say absolutely not. Don't even think about it. But on a cheaper truck, I mean, hell, honestly, I, I'll make an, an outrageous statement here. If I wanted to be an owner-operator right now and I had horrible credit, let's say I was in the 400s, and let's say somebody was willing to give me a loan on a 15000 or a $20,000 truck, and let's say they were going to charge me 30% interest, I'd still do it. If I wanted to get started and I had everything else right, I could make that work. 
when you look at the dollars, the extra dollars you have to spend, it's just not that much in the big scheme of things, as long as I keep the truck price low enough. You know, I'm not going to go out and buy a 50, 60, $70,000 truck at those rates, but hell, I'll, I'll buy a $15,000 truck. And because it's such a cheap truck, I can put it on a very short schedule. So if I'm going to buy a $15,000 truck, he'll charge me 30% interest. I'll, I'll only finance it for 12 months anyway. It's just not going to cost me that much more. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. The, well, anyway, I'm finally over 700. I've been working on it since May and uh, did the credit karma thing. Uh, finally have my credit score over 700. So I, I think I get reasonable right rates. Oh, so I'm getting ready to pull the trigger again. I was going to pull last summer. I stopped after the CMC. I said, I need to, I need to uh, get some more stuff lined up. And right. so now I think I'm really ready to pull the trigger. And so I don't come from a trucking family. I don't have a diesel background. I'm very comfortable with, you know, buying new and used cars you know, gasoline cars and negotiating that sort of thing. But I, I'm not comfortable with, you know, in the diesel and the big truck arena. What, you know, I listened to your video, I, you know, bought your video. I've been to the CMC last May. What is reasonable to expect when you negotiate? What is reasonable to ask for the seller when you're buying an older truck? You know, got uh, it. Let me, uh, the great question, by the way, and congratulations on a lot of things on, on putting this off till you could do it right. That's hard to do on getting your credit score up. That's outstanding. Um, congratulations. Those are all great things. We'll talk about the negotiation when we get back from this break. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're down to the final segment. I'm going to get right back to the calls. I was talking with Charles in Georgia. So Charles, this is a great question. So let's talk about a couple things. One is the, the strategy that I like to use is I always like to have multiple options going at the same time. My number is, is three. I like to have three trucks that I've researched and I'd be willing to buy any of the three. And then I'll use those three against each other in negotiation. And I'll, I, it may come down to whichever one I can negotiate the best deal on. And, and I will take the information for all three trucks to the dealer when I sit down with them. And I'll say, look, I'm interested in your truck, but I've got these other two that are starting to look like a better deal to me. They're just a better value. So we need to talk about price. That's one way. Put a little pressure on them that, that they know you've done your homework. You're looking at other trucks. You're looking at total value. That sets an expectation that if they want your business, they may have to compromise on the price. Whereas sometimes, especially first-time buyers, they're so excited to get a truck that they are in there just 
grinning ear to ear. They want this truck so bad. And the salespeople know that this is what they do every day. You walk in there and this is the only truck you're looking at. And you're that excited to get it. You've now set an expectation that they don't have to negotiate and they won't. So part of it is setting that expectation. You know, make them aware that you've done your homework, you've looked at all the specs, you're looking at value, you're looking at mileage. So they know that you're expecting some sort of a negotiation to happen. Then we, you know, here's the thing about negotiation. When you're negotiating with a truck, this is what we consider a kind of a one-time negotiation. You, you probably don't need to build a relationship here. This isn't a long-term thing. We don't necessarily have to work for a win-win negotiation. The way we would with, say, a broker if we're trying to build a long-term relationship. In a long-term, we're always going to give and take much more. Give more sometimes than we take. But in a one-time negotiation, hell, we just want to get the best deal we can get. So these are the times when I'll be really aggressive in negotiating. Let's say that the truck is listed at 18000 Hell, I might come in with my first offer at twelve, and just see what happens. All they can say is no, and, and then we can work from there. So if, if we go in with a really low price, that also sets an expectation. But Go ahead. Mike, what I was kind of worried about was what can I ask from them, like the uh, oil samples and that sort of thing? What, Every, what is everything. reasonable for me to expect? Every, I, I don't so, Here's what I – I would drop the word reasonable. Who cares about being reasonable? We want the best deal we can get. So we're going to ask for everything. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to ask for everything so, and, and see what happens. And so I, at, you know, this is actually a negotiation strategy. You ask for so much stuff that they give in on things they probably wouldn't have given in on just because you're asking for so much. That That's not a bad way to go so, about it. Another way to look at this so, is ask for things that uh, add value to you, but don't really cost them anything one of the examples i give a lot is if i'm at a used truck dealer and they have lots of trucks on the lot and i want this particular truck but i hate the tires that are on it well i'll walk around the rest of the lot Mm -hmm. till i find the tires that i want and i'll say you know swap those over to this truck and we've got a deal because that doesn't cost them anything yeah it costs them a ten dollar an hour you know they got a swap tires around who cares oh but so it's reasonable for me to ask for an oil sample what if what if the what if they have fresh oil on that stupid thing that's the most common problem you're going to run up against every every dealer the first thing they do is service a truck now here's another if that's really important to you here's the way i've done this in the past I've, you've been through my book, you know, I'm big on planning out everything, mm-hmm. getting it in writing, designing the exact truck that we want. Then I would take and looking that, at that, the worst case scenario. Right. I would take that list. Here's the truck I'm looking for. 
I would take it to a dealer and say, look, if you have one, something similar to this on the lot, I'll look at it. If you don't look for this truck for me, because dealers are always buying used trucks. They're always taking trade-ins. They're always going to auctions. So I would give the list to a couple sales guys and say, here's what I'm looking for. If you find this truck, don't service it because I want an oil sample before the oil gets changed. And then they may That's have that. Yeah, they may have that flexibility because they may buy it from an auction you- or take it as a trade-in. And if they know don't service it, then we can get a good oil sample out of this thing. Because that was one thing that I was worried about. Uh, I listened to a lot of your shows. I missed some because I have to deal with customers and stuff like that. But the you talk about, you know, you don't want an engine that's been freshly repainted and, you know, things along that line. And so what I'm thinking is, okay, so if I'm in the uh, – Twenty to thirty thousand dollar truck range, and I really have an oopsie. If I miss something, what's the worst that can happen? What? How much can I be on the hook for? Okay, I'm a company driver. I have a good job. I'm well paid, and I buy this truck for twenty thousand dollars, and I miss something, and something catastrophic happens or I find something catastrophic, what is the maximum I'm on the hook for? Well, let me give you a scenario. You know, the maximum is probably 20 grand. I mean, obviously, we could have some crazy chain of events go on where we dropped an engine, then the transmission failed, and a differential broke. In 30 years, I've never seen that happen. So somebody could always say, oh, no, Kevin, you're wrong. You could lose this and this and this. and that. Yeah, you could. But I'm telling you, the odds of that happening are slim to none. So the worst case scenario is we drop an engine, you know, and sometimes it okay. doesn't matter how okay. much work you do. Um, you know, we could have a risk so, so that nobody could ever predict. All right. So I'm a company driver and I sell my job and I buy the truck and. By you know some mere crazy thing, something crazy happens, and I can't drive the truck. I still have my company job. Yeah, twenty thousand isn't that bad. Well, and let me—you're right. It's not. It's not, especially because you've been planning for this. You've been doing all the right stuff. But let me give you another example. It—it wouldn't have to cost twenty thousand. Let's say that I dropped an engine and, and the best way to fix it would be to spend the 20000 get a complete in-frame, all that. But let's say I didn't have 20. Let's say I only had 10. Hell, I could probably get away with 10. I could probably go find a used engine somewhere and get it swapped out for ten grand, and take my chances. But, but I may not know anything about the but engine, you, but there but are... You still have your company time. job. But if you still have a company job, it's not a big deal. Uh, all right, you park the truck, Correct. keep driving for the company, and you pay it off, right? Yep, you save the money, and you you exactly. So that this is part of why I like the less expensive trucks to get started. Even when I say, sure, the new engines are getting better, they're not as risky as they used to be, 
if you spend 60000 on a truck, you've got more risk. So buying those fifteen dollars or $20,000 starter trucks, very, very low risk. And if, we, if worst case scenario happens, like you said, you're a good driver with a good record, you go back to work, you save your money, you get started again. So I, I think that's just the least amount of risk. Let's go to, uh, you know what? I'm looking at the clock and it doesn't look like I'm going to have time to do justice to another call. So looks like I'm going to have to wrap this up and we will have to do it again next time. Um, check out the website. If you haven't been there, we're always updating, changing, adding new information. I've been working on uh, videos about different things. We're going to be doing a lot more of those. We're going to be putting some uh, online courses together here soon. So lots of great information. And one of the ways to stay up to date is to the website. And um, it's that time of year. If you need any help with your accounting, we can certainly help you with that. Accounting and taxes are coming up. So um, you can call us as well. There's a lot of information on the website, but we have a great tribe care team that's here to help, you can always call them, 855-800-FUEL, 855-800-3835. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Thanks for tuning in to The Audio Road. If you have any questions, give us a call at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Check out the website at letstruck.com and find us on facebook.com slash letstruck.